If you have your Bible, you can turn to the book of Genesis in the 30th chapter. In a moment, we're going to read chapter 30, verses 25 through 33. But as we begin, have you ever had a situation in which you thought, everything is falling apart right now? It's going down in flames. But then you were surprised in the end to find out that everything turned out great. You ever had a situation like that? When I was in college, I had a professor who bragged at the beginning of the semester about his unique skill to torture students through writing incredibly difficult exams and tests. He said, I'm not like the other professors who give you obvious multiple choice answers. He said, I love to watch students torture themselves at their desk as they try to decide, it could be B, but I think it could be C also. So anyway, it was with great anticipation that we took the first test that semester, that everyone was very happy and looking forward to it. That's sarcasm, by the way. And as I sat at my desk and read through that test, there was about 12, 10 or 12 multiple choice questions, which meant that if you missed one, it counted a lot, right? You always want in a test like that 50 questions or maybe even 100. That way they only count one point each. But no, this was not the case. And I went through the test and every other question was like that. I'm not real sure. This could be B, this could be C, it could be A, I don't know. And just make a decision, make a decision. And I thought this is not going well. Then the professor also enjoyed as we finished our test and bringing them to him to grade them in front of us. Just quickly read through it because he liked to watch people's knees buckle and the anguish in their face. And so I sat as he went through and he checked the first one, correct. I was like, good. Check the second one, correct. Third one, correct. All the way through the end and I got all of them right. And he said, I guess I'll take it out on you in the essay. And then I left. Now the rest of that story is a different sermon illustration for a different day, but (laughs) as I was taking that test and that anxiety, I thought, this is not going well. But in the end, it actually turned out pretty good. I got all those questions that I was concerned about right. Well, this morning, the text before us really shows us that although oftentimes our circumstances and situations and what's going on in our life there's adversity, there's, there seems to be things working against us, seems to be things that are, that are going to sink us and destroy us, but yet in the midst of that, as God's people, he is working to prosper us, right? Kids, I know you're in here, and I know uh, you're really looking forward to listening to a sermon right now, I'm joking, and uh, you probably already run out of fruit snacks already, and uh, so I'm sorry about that. But the big picture of this sermon is that, that God is at work even in the midst of difficult circumstances in your life, that he is working in your life to prosper you. And so we're going to unpack that now as we look at Genesis chapter 30, verses 25 through 43. So turn your attention to God's word with me. As soon as Rachel had born Joseph, Jacob said to Laban, send me away that I may go to my home and country. Give me my wives and my children for whom I have served you that I may go. For you know the service that I have given you. But Laban said to him, If I have found favor in your sight, I have learned by divination that the Lord has blessed me because of you. Name your wages and I will give it. And Jacob said to him, You yourself know how I have served you and how your livestock have fared with me. For you had little before I came, and has increased abundantly, and the Lord has blessed you wherever I turn. But now, when shall I provide for my own household also? And he said, What shall I give you? And Jacob said, you shall, give, you shall not give me anything. If you will do this for me, I will again pass through your flock and keep it. Let me pass through all the flock today, removing from it every speckled and spotted sheep, every black lamb, and and the spotted and speckled among the goats, and they shall be my wages. So my honesty will answer for me later when you come to look into my wages with you. 
everyone that is not speckled and spotted among the goats and black among the lambs, if found with me, shall be counted stolen. Laban said, good, let it be as you've said. But that day Laban removed the male goats that were striped and spotted and the female goats that were speckled and spotted, every one that had white on it and every lamb that was black. And he put them in the charge of his sons. And he set a distance of three days' journey between himself and Jacob. And Jacob pastured the rest of Laban's flock. Then Jacob took fresh sticks of poplar and almond and plane trees, and he peeled white streaks in them, exposing the white of the sticks. And he set the sticks that he had peeled in front of the flocks in the troughs, that is, the watering places where the flocks came to drink. And since they bred when they came to drink, the flocks bred in front of the sticks, and so the flocks brought forth striped, speckled, and spotted. And Jacob separated the lambs, and he set the faces of the flocks toward the stripe, and all the black in the flock of Laban. And, I mean, he put his own droves apart and did not put them with Laban's flock. Whenever the strong of the flock were breeding, Jacob would lay the sticks in the troughs before the eyes of the flock that they might breed among the sticks. But for the feebler of the flock, he would not lay them there. So the feebler would be Laban's and the stronger Jacob's. Thus the man increased greatly and had large flocks, female servants and male servants and camels and donkeys. This is God's word. Let's pray. Father, we are thankful for your word. We ask and confess now that we absolutely need your help. Father, just as our bodies, when we have food and we eat, eating itself is not enough. We're dependent on our bodies to work correctly and digest that food and take in that nutrient. So it is this morning, just because we hear your word doesn't mean that it will have the effect on us that it needs to without the help of the Holy Spirit in the preaching and in the hearing. Oh, Father, that our hearts would be good soil and that we'd hear the word this morning, that we would take it to heart, that we would believe it, and that it would bear fruit. So it is our prayer this morning, knowing that your word does not return void, that for any who hear this, here in person or through the live stream, or later on, Father, that this would not work to harden their heart, but would work to soften their hearts, to move those who don't yet know you toward belief, and to increase the belief, the faith, the trust of those who already belong to you. May it be so for your glory, for our good. It's the name of Christ we pray. Amen. Well, if when you read this passage for the first time, and if you read it for the first time this morning in a long time, if your first thought was, hmm, you're in good company. <laughs> Actually, my first thought was, I don't think Ken likes me very much. <laughs> and then my second thought was, hmm, no, I'm kidding. About the part where I didn't think he liked me. The part about, hmm, that was definitely it. But as always, you know your church, first of all, you know your church is committed to expositional preaching when you preach a passage like this. Uh, second, uh, as always, as we focus on God's word more and more, always nourished by it, always amazed by it, always come to see his word to be cherished, as the psalmist says, more precious than fine gold, much fine gold. Sweeter than honey on the lips is the word of the Lord. And so that's our prayer this morning as we begin this passage. I hope that that will be your experience as we look together to God's word. And so here, I'm just titling this sermon, Prospering in Adversity. Prospering in Adversity. And so I'm not very great at PowerPoint, but I've got a quick outline up there for you on the screen, maybe. I don't know that you guys can throw that up. Uh, I thought about trying to do the little machine gun sound effect when the points roll in. Do y'all remember that from uh, Windows 95? But anyway, uh, I couldn't remember how to do it. So anyway, uh, what we have is just the quick outline for you on the screen. Uh, I've broken this passage down this way. Verses 25 through 26 are longing for home. Uh, the next section, 27 through 34, is adversity. 35 through 36 is plotting and scheming. And then the end of this passage, we see prospering in the midst of adversity. And so there's a quick outline. That's where we're going. And uh, let's, uh, 
Let's look together there. Look at verses 25 and 26 that we just read, and I, I love this. As soon as Rachel had born Joseph. So as we saw last week, as Pastor Ken preached an excellent sermon, you should go watch it if you had not seen it. And if you, if you were here or did see it, go watch it again. And, and as we see from last week that God, what, added to Jacob. He prospered Jacob by giving him offspring. That he prospered him by giving him offspring. And here in this passage, what we're seeing is that God is going to prosper Jacob by giving his family what they need, and catch this at the end, more than what they need, uh, and, and prospering him financially, really, and giving him much, making him a very wealthy man. And so there in verse 25, as we see the segue into this passage, it says that as soon as Rachel had born Joseph, Jacob said to Laban, send me away that I may go to my own home country. Now, I think that's incredibly significant, and we need to pay attention to that because it's going to be a help to us as we move forward in the sermon. That Here what we see is there's this longing for home. There's this longing for home. Jacob's ready to go back to the promised land. We're seeing that he, in fact, is. Uh, uh, his faith in God is growing, just as we saw the faith of Abraham increase as the Lord was at work in his life. And here, this faith is increasing in Jacob, and, and he longs to be home. And, and here's something that I'm learning right now that's so important that we'll hold on to as we move through the sermon, that your hope and we'll use a language that Pastor Bodhi used in the prayer this morning, your vertical, your hope, whatever it's placed in, whether it's an idol, as we talked about last week, or it's in the one true God, it orients your life, your horizontal. It orients everything that you do in life. And so, so your hope orients the direction and the trajectory of your life. And here we see that Jacob is longing for home. He's longing to return. Now, if you'll remember back to Genesis 28, verse 15, this is what the Lord told him in that moment there at Bethel. He said, behold, I am with you, and I will keep you wherever you go, and I will bring you back to this land. For I will not leave you until I've done what I've promised you. And God promised Jacob that he would return home. He promised him that he would bring him back to that land. And here we see that, that Jacob is longing for that. He's longing to return home. And you need to hold on to this. You need to think about this passage as we move into chapter 31 next week. But listen to what uh, is said in verse 26. He says, give me my wives. What this seems to indicate is that Jacob is enslaved. Uh, those who were, who were enslaved, if they were given wives uh, during that, given a spouse during that, and they had offspring, it would, it would belong to the person who had them enslaved, even if they were, if they were set free. He says, give me my wives. He, he feels enslaved. That's important. He feels like he cannot get out of this situation. And so he says, give me my wives and my children for whom I have served you that I may go for you know the service I have given you. So here we see that Jacob is longing for home and that Jacob, there's indication here that he feels enslaved, he feels stuck, and he can't move on, all right? And so then we'll see verses 27 through 34, this adversity, right, this adversity. Uh, a couple things to point out here. Let's look at verse 26. But Laban said to him, if I have found favor in your sight, I've learned by divination. That would seem to indicate some sort of omen. It would, next week we'll see about household idols that Jacob has sought this. It, it ought to just be plain and obvious, by the way. He shouldn't have had to seek divination to know this. But um, <clears throat> he said uh, that the Lord has blessed me because of you. Name your wages and I will give it. Jacob said to him, you yourself know that I've served you and your livestock, how it's fared with me. Now you can look ahead quickly over there at uh, verse 31. Uh, what Laban's going to say is just, you know, what, what shall I give you? And Jacob says, you shall not give me anything. It reminds us of what Ab Abraham himself said to the king of Sodom. I'll take nothing from you. And so here we, we see this pattern that's coming up. Is Jacob saying, I'm not taking anything from you, Right? And then verse 30, back to that. This is uh, their conversation about Laban's prosperity because of Jacob. So uh, Jacob is a blessing to others. For you had little before I came, and it increased abundantly, and the Lord has blessed you wherever I turn. But now, when shall I provide for my own household? And so Jacob's saying, what about me? What about my household? I've got to be established here. Children, the Lord has blessed us with children, and now I need to be established and have my own needs met. And so here is what Jacob proposes. Go back to verse 31, B, the second part of that verse. He says, if you will do this for me, I will again pastor your flock and keep it. He said, so I'll, I'll continue on. 
He says, let me pass through all your flock today, removing from it every speckled and spotted sheep, every black lamb and the spotted and speckled among the goats, and they shall be my wages. Now, what we understand is from that time that sheep predominantly would have been white in that, that time and where they were, and then the goats would predominantly be dark, right? They'd be dark colored. And so what Jacob is saying is he says, give me the rarer. Of, of each flock. So give me the black sheep, give me the, the off-colored goats, if you will, and uh, that will be mine. And so he's saying, give me the, the smaller portion of the flocks and then let me continue to pasture and, uh, the flocks and then that will be his increase, right? And then the, the greater part will be Laban's. He'll get to keep the greater. So Jacob's actually saying, give me the lesser, you keep the greater, and, uh, and that will be my wages. So, so what, what's happening here is that Jacob is going to continue. He'll uh, be established by his own work, right? By the Lord blessing him and the work that he's working. He says, let me increase this way. And so um, we see there in 33, so my honesty will answer. He says, later, if you come and look, and, and there's in my flocks any of the, the regular colored sheep and goats, he says, you'll know. That, that, I, that I took those out, and you can count it as stolen. Let my integrity answer. I, you can just call me a thief in that moment. So Jacob's setting out a pretty good deal here. He's setting out a pretty good deal before Laban, and um, Laban seems to notice it. Look at what he says in verse 34. Laban said, good, let it be as you've said. He's like, hurry, quick, sign the dotted line, pass me the sandal, whatever it was they were going to do. Uh, that's a reference to Ruth, by the way. And, and so he says, he says, let's do this. Let's make this contract binding before there's any more fine print. And so we see that, that they enter in, but then look at what Laban does. And we're just seeing this adversity, this, this continual. Jacob feels stuck. He wants to go home. He's, he's not allowed to go home. He says, all right, let's do this. And, and I'll even take the weaker part of this. I'll give you the better end of the deal. And then Laban is still going to plot and to scheme uh, behind the scenes. And so we see there uh, this come about right after they make this agreement. And it says, but that day, Laban's like, all right, let's get down to business. Let's hurry, and let's remove, uh, that day, let's remove these, uh, uh, these parts of the flock. The, the, uh, verse 35, but that day Laban removed the male goats that were striped and spotted, and all the female goats that were speckled and spotted, everyone that had white on it, and every lamb that was black, and put them in the charge of his sons. So he puts them in the charge of his sons, and he sets three days between them. And uh, what's going on here? More than likely, uh, either Laban's saying, I'll be the one in charge, which he has no reason to do that because Jacob's already said, look, if there's ever any mixture, you can call me a thief. And uh, so uh, <clears throat> Laban seems to be trying to separate, get them away from each other, and limiting the possibility that Jacob will have much of anything. He said, if Jacob tends these flocks, it will only produce... The, the lambs that will be mine and the goats that will be mine and Jacob will have nothing. Laban is scheming against him. He's working against him in this. And so Jacob is having to work in the midst of this adversity. Now, one thing I want you to notice before we, we move any further into this is when you think back to Jacob and, and what he had said about, um, look at verse 29 and 30 in the beginning. He said, Jacob said, you yourself know how I have served you and how your livestock have fared with me. So Jacob's saying here, I've worked hard. I've worked hard for you. You know how I've served you. Hard work. You know how the increase has been given. And, but look at this. Hard work, because this is important. We'll come back to it. For you had little before I came and it increased abundantly and the Lord has blessed you wherever I am. Jacob's like, I worked hard but it was God that was blessing in the midst. Before I forget the references, think back to Psalm 127 that Pastor Ken preached, I believe it was on Mother's Day. Right? If the Lord doesn't bless, it's all in vain. It's all in vain. And so here we, we have, you can go and, and reflect on that psalm again this afternoon. And so here we have that. We have this hard work, but God is blessing at the same time. All right. So Laban is plotting and scheming, but Jacob's just going to continue. He's going to continue this hard work. And, uh, and, but then something a little bit uh, strange is, is going on. And as we read this, we're thinking, what in the world is, is, is happening here? What, what is this? And um, so let's pray, and uh, Pastor Ken will address it next week. And uh, <laughs> I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. So here, 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 let's think about this. Derek Kidner says, and I'm equating what Jacob is doing here to the mandrakes from last week. Uh, Derek Kidner says, this is common of their day. 
uh, that they thought if uh, in the moment of conception, that if those uh, livestock were staring at something, if their eyes were fixed on something that was uh, that caught their attention, so in this case, Jacob's stripping the wood and creating stripes in it, that that their offspring would, would look like that, that their offspring would have stripes, they would be speckled, they'd be spotted because of seeing something vivid in that moment of breeding and conception. And so Jacob is, although working hard here, he seems to be resorting to, uh, like the mandrakes last week, of saying, ah, you know, God might need a little bit of help. And we could, we could talk about that for a long time, but I spent a long time on that in Genesis 26. I thought we should focus on different application this week. But God doesn't need our help, brothers and sisters. We just need to trust him. And we need to do what he's called us to do. And we don't need to be creative and try to assist him in the task. Right? And so Jacob here seems to be resorting to that and saying, okay, if I, if I can do this and try to, to make things uh, work out a little bit better. And so in the midst of this, uh, Jacob still, and this is encouraging as well, even in the midst of Jacob's weak faith, if you will, God is still at work and still blesses. God is still at work and still blesses. Can we not thank God for that this morning? Can we not testify to that ourselves in those moments of our weak faith, in those moments where we see that God continues to bless uh, even when we don't deserve it? And so here we see also Jacob is using just, he's he's an expert herdsman, if you will, here in the end uh, of breeding in the stronger flock, he's doing this on purpose, seeking to, to gain stronger uh, flock for himself. But in the midst of all of it, look at verse 43. The man increased greatly and had large flocks, female servants, male servants, camels, and donkeys. And what it's saying is that during this time that, that Jacob prospered immensely. The listing of camels there would have been rare in their day for, for anybody who had a camel. If you had a camel, it's like, man, you are Balling, you're rolling at this point, right? You have really made it. So that one doesn't get traction with this crowd. But you have really, really made it. You've arrived. And so this is what this is what's going on. Jacob is is wealthy. And his 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 prosperity, his wealth has amassed greatly. All right, a couple things. Thus God had taken all the livestock. Jacob recognizes. That even in the midst of this and even in his hard work, look at 31, chapter 31, look at verse 9. Even in the midst of all this, that it was God who prospered him. So just for a minute, let's dip into next week's passage. Verse 9. As he's speaking to Rachel and Leah, he says, Thus God has taken away the livestock of your father, and he's given them to me. He knows. He speaks there of a dream that he had and how God was directing him. And how, although through his work, that it was God's blessing that was prospering him and that was adding to him. And he acknowledges that. He acknowledges that in the beginning of this conversation with Laban as he tells him that he increased because of God. And he's acknowledging later, uh, next week as we'll see, or later on, as he's speaking with uh, Rachel and Leah, that it's God who has prospered him and who has added to the number. What I want you to see at the same time is that the Lord not only has prospered him, but he has prospered, he's prospered Jacob well beyond what Jacob could even imagine. Go back to chapter 28 again and think about verse 20. He says, if God will be with me and will give me bread to eat and clothing to wear. <laughs> That's what Jacob asked for. If, if God will do that, if he'll give me the basic needs, well, Jacob is well supplied far beyond those basic needs. God has abundantly blessed Jacob. So, so what is happening here, and, and how is it, as we look at this, can we understand, as God's people today, as New Covenant believers in the church of Jesus Christ, how, how does this passage, what are we learning about God, that apply to us, and, and what do we take away from this? Why is it that we would be committed to preaching all of God's word, every part of it, because we believe that all of it is good and is what we need and nourishes us as believers? I'm reminded of a story that I heard of a lady who would sit on the front row of her church. And she'd sit there, and as the preacher was preaching, she would, be, she would always say the same thing every Sunday. Get him up. Get him up. And as she grew increasingly agitated with the preacher, she would say it louder and more frequently. And what she was referring to is lift up Christ. Lift him up. Get him up. 
So I'm going to get there as fast as I can with this passage. Because what we see in this passage is a pattern. And we recognize patterns of, in God's word of how the Lord works and how is, he, how is he at work, and it leads us to the gospel, and those same patterns continue on as those who are on this side of the cross and resurrection. What is it that we see in this passage that, that applies directly to our lives? Here's the pattern that, that I think is clear in this passage. Remember, Jacob feels somewhat enslaved. Think forward, as Pastor Ken has referenced, that when this is written and when the Israelites are hearing this for the first time, there of coming out of Egypt. We see this very similar pattern going on here. Now notice what happens. He feels enslaved, but even in the midst of all this adversity, even in the midst of this, this plotting and this scheming against him, look at verse 43 then. Again, thus the man increased greatly. Now this same phrase is used in Exodus. It's used in the beginning of Exodus. That there, as God's people are being enslaved in Egypt, this is what it says of the offspring. It's the continuation of this promise that God made of what we begin to see beginning more fully last week, continuing through the patriarchs into the Exodus. And, and notice what it says in Exodus 1.6. But the people, of the, the people of Israel were fruitful and increased greatly. This is the same language. It's not used that often in the Pentateuch. But here, so, so it draws our attention to it when it is used again, when the, when the author uses the same language, Moses here. He says, they increased greatly. They multiplied and they grew exceedingly strong. The language is almost like they, they teemed and they swarmed. They were so great in number. So that the land was filled with them. Now, what I want you to see at the same time is, is that, that God is prospering them in the midst. God is prospering Jacob in the midst of this adversity. God is going to continue to prosper. Fast forward to, to the Exodus, he prospers his people in the midst of this enslave, enslavement, and he's going to deliver, just as we'll see he'll do here and he'll do later in Exodus. Yet he does something that's very similar both times as he delivers his people and prospers them. Notice back to what we said about Genesis 31.9, the verse chapter ahead. Jacob said this, thus God has taken away the livestock of your father. See, this conversation begins when Rachel and Leah say, our father has nothing left. Remember, he had prospered. That's how this chapter began. This, this part of the narrative began. He had prospered with Jacob, tried to keep him, tried to plot, tried to scheme against him. And then Jacob prospers, and he has nothing left. Laban has nothing left. And, and Jacob's confession is this. He says, thus God has taken away the livestock of your father and has given them to me. What happened is God allowed Jacob to plunder Laban. Laban's lost everything he had through this process. It reminds us what we see in Exodus in Exodus 12, that as God is delivering the people out, it said this, And the Lord had given favor to the people in the sight of the Egyptians so that they let them have what they asked. Thus they plundered the Egyptians as they left. This gave them gold and possessions. Please get out, you know, after those ten plagues. Well, friends, I see a very strong pattern that surfaces and that continues to move through in redemption. We fast forward to Jesus and he comes on the scene and he's preaching the good news of the kingdom, saying repent and believe the gospel. And there he's accused of, of Satan, right, of using Satan's power to do his ministry and the miracles. And this is what he says in Matthew 12, 29. He says, how can this house be at, at, at war with itself? How can, how can Satan work against Satan, and he says this, he says, or how can someone enter the strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man? Then indeed he may plunder his house. And what Jesus is saying, he's saying, hey, I have come to bind the strong man, Satan himself, and I'm about to plunder his house. Now where do we see that happening? Friends, we see it happening in the ministry of Jesus. I mean, the very first thing that's going on is, is that literally, as, as R.C. Sproul says, uh, talking about the gospel of, of Mark, when Jesus comes on the scene, it's like all hell is breaking loose against him. 
We see the demonics crying out, you're the son of God, surely you're the son of God. Do not, right? They're crying out against him in fear against him. Even, even the, the storm on the sea, the indications in the text in the Gospel of Mark is that, that it was by satanic activity that great storm came that Jesus brought a great calm to it. And what he's showing is, is that you are no contest for me, Satan. That's what Jesus is showing. And that, that through those miracles that Jesus is performing, that he's, he's reversing the curse, that, that what came through sin, you remember the, the paralytic man when he healed him, and he said, just so you know, he says, your sins are forgiven, and he says, stand up and walk. He, he, he forgives the man's sins, and he heals him the, the effects of sin that have come through our rebellion against God. And Jesus is showing, I'm here to plunder the strong man's house, that what he holds, he will hold no longer. And so Jesus moves through in his healing uh, of giving sight to the blind, of, of opening the ears of the deaf, of healing the sick, of feeding the hungry. He is showing them that this is what it looks like to reverse the curse all the way up to Jairus' daughter, Talitha Kumai, even reversing death itself. And he says, this is what I'm about. Satan is no contest to me. I'm here to plunder the house and free my people. Notice what Hebrews says in Hebrews 2, 14 and 15. He being Christ himself likewise took part in the same things that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver those who through the fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. Do you see that? That Christ himself has come and he's identified with us and he's, he's, he's taken on our flesh and he's experienced the suffering, yet he was without sin and he lived perfectly honoring and glorifying the Father and always loving neighbor, yet went to the cross and he tasted death and endured death and destroyed death on our behalf and he frees us from the sin that enslaves us and the death that awaits us through his resurrection. Brothers and sisters, this is good news This is what we're seeing patterned back here in Genesis and Exodus moves forward to the gospel for a delivery that is far greater than the Exodus. And brothers and sisters, that was an amazing delivery that as God had a showdown with a man who thought he was God in Pharaoh and pried his fingers loose of his people one finger at a time through those ten plagues and said, let my people go. Yet there is, a, there is an enemy that enslaves us that is far worse than any man in this world. And it is sin and it is death and there is no escape yet through Christ Jesus who has come. And he says, I'll plunder the house of the enemy. I will bind him and I'll take back what rightfully belongs to me and I will deliver my people. Brothers and sisters, you know what? We don't yet know the full reality of this, do we? We've tasted it. For those who are in Christ, we have tasted this reality, but we don't yet know the fullness of it. We've not yet experienced the fullness of this salvation. But can I tell you something? Hope orients our direction and our trajectory, and we need to be reminded of the fullness that is to come. We need to be reminded that one day faith will be sight. One day hope will be realized. And one day love will endure forevermore. We need to be reminded that at the Father's command, at the word of the Father, the Son will return in a blaze of glory and he will light up the eastern sky and he will judge the living and the dead and he will gather all of his people to himself and on that day, friends, there won't be any live stream because we won't be separated from one another. There won't be any uh, turmoil going on. There will be peace. There will be justice and on that day, all the blind will see and on that day, all the deaf will hear and on that day, 
all the lame will walk. And on that day, all the hungry will receive food without price. And on that day, get this is the best part, there won't be any more indwelling sin that we're wrestling against. And on that day, all the dead will rise and they will be joined together with him and they shall see his face. Brothers and sisters, this right now is not the end of the story. This is living in the gap between the promise that we are tasting and the full reality that is yet to be realized. But it is coming. It's coming and it is good that we be reminded of this. All the time. Because you want to know, if you're like me, your heart's fickle. And as soon as you walk out of here, the false, hollow hopes of the world are vying for you. And you just start to be seduced and lured away by their siren calls. But we need to be anchored to this hope. Friend, I don't know this morning where you are, but I just wonder if you have this kind of hope. Because the reality is, death awaits all of us. And apart from the one who tasted death from us, for us, and can shield us and can speak a better word for us, there is no hope. If you try to stand before the God who created you, who owns you, who, uh, who lays account on you, and you must answer to him, if you try to stand before him on your own and speak for yourself, you will find yourself condemned because we are all sinners. Yet Christ Jesus came and lived that life that we could not live, took the death that we deserved, and he offers the free gift of salvation to any who would look to him in faith and repentance. And friend, on that day, if you belong to him, when you stand before God, he will speak a better word for you. You will be sheltered under the shadow of his wings. Turn to Christ. Church, here's what I want us to see. Three things in light of this. Three things in light of this. I want us to see that, that God is prospering us in adversity, in our suffering, in our sanctification, and in your ministry. I want us to see that, that God is prospering us in the midst of adversity, in your suffering, in your sanctification, in your ministry. And I want you to see three things at work there. This is why we wanted to point those out earlier. He's prospering you. Effort is involved, and you have hope, right? He's prospering you, effort is involved, and there's hope. Now, as we talk about prospering here as new covenant believers, we have to be real clear about what we mean. Here's the problem with prosperity gospel preachers, is they flatten the text of the Bible, and they miss all the contours and all the beauty of it. And they flatten it out and they say, well, Jacob was God's man and so if God was going to prosper him and make him rich and wealthy, then that's what he wants for you. Can I just tell you that, that when you hear those voices, that they come with a hiss because they echo the truth distorter of truth distorters, Satan himself in the garden as he twisted God's word. And don't believe those voices. They tickle the ear, but man, they'll bite you in the end. What we see in scripture is this, that God was making a people and a nation in Israel. And I'd love to have a conversation with you about this later if you have questions. But Jesus is the true and better Israel, and he fulfilled that. And now Jesus is not building a nation, but he's building a people of the nations, And his people are the church in their commission to go with his message to all nations and proclaim it by his authority. And what we see in scripture is that the way that God is prospering us as new covenant believers, we can see clearly in in these three areas of suffering, sanctification, and ministry. By the way, Apostle Paul, who, who God used to write so much of scripture, says in Philippians 4, that he knows what it's like to be well-served and to be in want. So he didn't believe the prosperity gospel. Let's think about these three ways. In your suffering, God is prospering you even in the midst of this adversity, and it feels like everything is working against you, even in your suffering. Jonathan mentioned it to our seniors a moment ago, 
I love James chapter 1. James 1, 4, that, that he's working in this. Consider it joy when you face trials. Real man, come on, that's kind of strange language. Joy, typically think about that, right? Um, and it doesn't mean some kind of superficial, well, praise the Lord, I had a flat tire. That's not what he's talking about there. But what he's talking about is this, 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 this settled trust in knowing that God is sovereign in the midst of those things and he's working for your good. And, and so here what we see is that he, he says that he's working and let steadfastness, let perseverance finish its work that you may be mature and complete, not lacking anything. See, what that tells us is that even in the midst of our suffering, that, that God is prospering us. That he is growing us in maturity. He is, he is forming us more and more in the image of Christ. That he's taking a little bit of these fickle hearts that we have that are set on the things of the world and he's removing the world from it and setting them on things above. One piece at a time. One slither at a time. He, he's setting us more and more our attention to his things. But brothers and sisters, what you need to understand is that although God is at work and prospering you in that, there is effort on your part that you are fighting for belief in the midst of that. Look at what James says. He's let steadfast ha- steadfastness have its, what? Let it finish. Let it have its full effect. That's perseverance. Y'all know what perseverance means? It means long-suffering. After the service today, we have a snow cone stand outside. That's a joke, kids. Don't get I, Everybody just looked up. And then we have a, a booth that's going to focus on long-suffering. So if you'd like to take part in that, go on out there. And I guarantee you the line would be at the snow cone stand and not at the booth for long-suffering. Nobody's signing up for that, right? It means perseverance. It means long-suffering. Here's the reality is that when we're in the midst of suffering so often, I'm just going to speak honest and tell you where, where I am when things start going bad and when suffering comes into life. I want to get in the HOV lane in a sports car and I want to find the first exit as fast as I can and get out of that. But so often when we're in suffering, we're broke down on the side of the road in a pair of old shoes or flip-flops and we're walking on the shoulder, right? It's going slow. He says, let it finish its work. That God is, God is working in that. I, I love Psalm 42. This is what the psalmist is doing. Listen to what he says. He says, my, my adversaries, they taunt me. And while they say to me day, all the day long, where is your God? See, the adversaries say, God doesn't love you if he's letting you go through that. He says, they say to me, where is your God? He says, while they say this all the day long. And, and he says, I ask myself, why are you cast down, oh, my soul? And why are you in turmoil within me? Hope in God, for I shall again praise him, my salvation and my God. Do you see what he's doing there? He's talking to himself. He said, I know they're coming against you, and they're saying, where's your God? He doesn't love you. But he he said, I'm telling myself, why are you cast down? Hope in God. Set your hope in God. Oh, friends, we need that. We need that. So God is prospering us in our suffering to mature us. He's prospering us, but it takes effort on our part, and it's hope that sustains us. It's hope that sustains us. 1 Peter 1 says that, speaking to the church, the suffering, he says, you have a living hope. Why? Because you have a living Savior. That's what he says there in the beginning of that chapter. And he says this hope is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading. I'd love to unpack that, but let's just think about the first one. Imperishable. If your hope is in Christ, it has no expiration date. Except for when he returns and it's realized. Right? It does not expire. That hope is indestructible. Sanctification. In your sanctification, the Lord is prospering you. That more and more, he is working to conform you into the image of his son. Do you know that often in in sanctification, when we feel like we're losing, we're actually gaining? Do, do Do you recognize that? I believe it was Tim Chester in his book, You Can Change, said that, that in, in our sanctification, he said often it's like walking into a dimly lit room and you walk into it and somebody says, tell me everything that's in here. And you can say, oh, you know, the walls are kind of green and there's a couch over there. And there's this. He says, but, but then if somebody has the dimmer and they just kind of lift the lights up, he said you begin to see, oh, there's a, there's a hole in the wall over there. There's a hole in the carpet right there. There's a big uh, tear in the sheetrock over here. He says you can see more. He says, that's the way it works with sanctification. As the Lord grows us and the Holy Spirit turns the light up, we see 
how sinful we really are. And we feel so discouraged by that so often. But what the Lord is doing is he is, by his grace, revealing to us more and more and conforming us more and more to the image of Christ. We begin to see that these surface sins are connected to a lot of these root idols that we talked about last week. And we're like, wow, man, that's, that sin's deep in there. Yes, it is, and God's mercy and grace is deeper. So even often in our sanctification, we feel like we're losing, but God is prospering us. But brothers and sisters, it takes work on our part. We're to work. Think about Philippians 2, 12. Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you. You see that it's God's grace. It's God that works in you, but you are to work out what he's working in you, both to will and work for his good pleasure. And brothers and sisters, we have hope in this. We have hope. Philippians 1, 6. And we're sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. Think about that. I mean, this is an endeavor that you have guaranteed success on. When do we ever get something like that? When do you, when do you, when do you introduce to a prospect of something, hey, here's a business venture, hey, here's a project, here's, you will absolutely 100% be successful in that. We never have those kind of guarantees in this life, but through God's word, we do. It will happen, brothers and sisters. There's your hope. Press on. God is prospering you. And even in ministry, here I'll just use ministry broadly. I'm talking about ministry, the word. Brothers and sisters, this could be ministry in the church. This could be not just pulpit ministry, not just the teaching of the elders. This can be you speaking the word to a fellow church member, driving what you've heard through, uh, through pulpit ministry, driving what you're reading deeper down into the hearts of one another and speaking that truth to one another. This can be you and your kids speaking truth to your kids and seeking to disciple them in the way of the Lord. This can be on and on we can go, this ministry as we proclaim the word. But even often, as we think that things are not going well, God is prospering us. I love Paul's example in Philippians 1. He said, I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel so that it has become known throughout the whole imperial guard and to the rest of all of my imprisonment, that my imprisonment is for Christ. Paul's like, I'm in jail. People are making fun of me. Oh, some kind of apostle you are, you know. Uh, and you're in jail. He said, it's all good. He said, everybody here knows about Jesus now. I'm okay with it, right? I mean, he says, even in this adversity, God is at work. He's prospering. But it takes effort. Does it not? Parents, does it not? working with, with, a, with a brother or sister in Christ through, through difficulty and, and trying to keep truth before them. Paul says in Colossians 1.28, he says, Him we proclaim that we may present everyone mature in Christ. For this I toil, struggling with all of his energy that works powerfully in me. 1 Corinthians 1.15, I worked harder than them all. But it's not I, it was the grace of God with me. Paul says, I've worked hard, I've toiled, but I know it's God's grace. It's just like Jacob. He says, man, your, 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 your flocks have prospered under my care. It's because of the increase of the Lord. The Lord is in it. It takes effort, but we have hope. What is our hope? When we think about ministry of the word, so we're not promised that our kids will believe. We're not promised that that person we're laboring with uh, and sharing the gospel will come to faith. We're not promised that that person we're laboring with in the church will repent and turn from sin. We are promised that God's word will not return void. It will do what he has set it to accomplish to do. Have you ever heard the story of Luke Short? Mr. Short lived to be 100 years old. He was saved by God's grace, and the Lord used a sermon that he heard 85 years earlier. Think about this. Mr. Short talked about living in the mid-1700s. He was sitting in a field one day in New England, and he's reflecting on his long life. And during that reflection, he recalled a sermon that he heard from the Puritan John Flavel 85 years prior. And when he was just a young boy, before he'd even sailed to America, he heard this sermon. But as he thought, that sermon came to mind, and the horror of dying under the curse of God was impressed on him, and he was converted to Christ. 85 years. Flavel was dead at that point, but I can guarantee you he probably wouldn't have remembered that sermon he preached. But by the grace of God, 
His word does not return void. It accomplishes what it sets out to do. Brothers and sisters, we may not see the results of what God's word is doing immediately, much less in our lifetime. Charles Bridges in the 1800s said, the seeds that we sow may lie fallow under the soil until long after you do and then spring up. Praise be to God. His word does not return void. The power is not in the, in the messenger. The power is in the message. Continue on, press on, and preach the gospel. Friends, our hope determines our trajectory and direction. What is your hope in? What is your hope in this morning? When my daughter was born, we had this tradition. I was asking one of our new uh, families with a new baby this morning, how's sleep going? And uh, he said that we're getting to that, where they're sleeping that four or five hour stretch. That's a good place, right? When you, those of you who had a new baby in the house, you're like, wow. Before, before a baby, you're like, I, I'd like 10 hours of, of sleep. But you'll take anything you can get afterwards. And so, um, but we would uh, we'd stay up. I'd stay up with her. Uh, and uh, not in those middle of the night feedings. I'm, I mean, before we ever went to bed. So I'll just be clear. I've got to be honest here. Uh, so, but we'd stay up late, right? Try to feed her one time and then hope she'd make it four or five hours. And I found ourselves, every time that we would wait on this late night feeding, that, that uh, because our kids were watching PBS Kids, yeah, go ahead and judge me, in the mornings, our TV was already on that. And so at that late at night, if you turned on the TV, guess what was on? Antiques Roadshow. And uh, Antiques Roadshow, the first time I saw it, I was like, Man, this, is, this is ridiculous. And so, uh, but I got sucked into it. I was like, this is really, really kind of cool. And so as I'm watching it, here's what I noticed. There's this pattern that always came up. Somebody's like, look, look, here's what I've got. An antiques roadshow, they bring an antique, and they'd have somebody uh, who was an expert in this, and they would tell them, they'd evaluate it, and they would tell them, yeah, this is what you have, this is where it's from, it's worth this, or, hey, that's not what you think it is, it's not worth it. And that was always the pattern. So you'd have this person who's like, look, I got this, my grandmother gave me this, and, they, and she said it was from this famous artist or this famous potter or whatever it is and they'd lay it out there and like yeah well I'm sorry I think your grandma was confused because this isn't really worth 50 cents and um, it's, it's a fraud or it's not true or it was a you know it's not real it's not what you think it is and then there'd be others who are like yeah I kind of found this somebody said it might be worth something so I thought I'd bring it here and they're like well actually and they start telling them all about it and they're like wow you know you had this you had this treasure that you didn't even realize and then they would tell them this exuberant price this is worth thousands and thousands of dollars, and people would just be floored. Brothers and sisters, it's going to be like that on the last day. A lot of people are going to come up, and they're going to say, look at what I got. And God's going to say, you know what? You have nothing. Apart from me, for, you, for I never knew you. But then for those who are in Christ, I'm going to say, all I have is Christ. And God's going to say, you have riches beyond what you ever imagined or even realized in your life. Brothers and sisters, that is a hope that should orient our lives. If you don't have that hope, turn to Christ this morning. Don't leave this room until you talk to somebody who's been up front or sitting near you that loves the gospel and love to talk with you about it and pray with you. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. Use it for your glory, for our good. Set our lives and our hope on you and you alone. God, guard us from our fickle hearts. Give us eyes to see, even as we walk out of here, those hollow hopes that the world puts before us. They're vain. They don't compare. Help us to see that the adversities that we experience in this life as Christians and as your people Although difficult, they are light and momentary, and they are working for us an eternal weight of glory. It's in your name, the name of Christ we pray. Amen.